This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 8. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen About Culture and Faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's also a columnist at the National Catholic Reporter. I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf, Executive Editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. Welcome, Dan. Good to see you both. Good morning. <laughs> Good to see you both, too. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be discussing Sister Natalie Bacar and her recent appointment to an important role with the Vatican. We're going to be talking about what we're watching to distract ourselves in the midst of winter and pandemic. And we're going to be talking about the beginning of Lent. But before we get to all that, Heidi, how have you been in the past couple of weeks? Well, I'm great. We're recording this morning after the Super Bowl. So in our family, we were watching that, even though we didn't have a lot of close connection to either of those teams. But some of you may know that NCR's offices, our main offices, are located in Kansas City. So even though I personally don't live and work in Kansas City, I had to be cheering for the Chiefs. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed today. That's I was going to say, no connection. NCR, at least <laughs> spiritual connection to to the Casey Chiefs. Okay, diehard Packer fan here, so it's hard for me to move my football allegiances to anywhere, even if it is my workplace. <laughs> yeah, and somebody asked me yesterday who I was rooting for as I was scraping the ice off the windshield of our car, and I, I said with all honesty, I don't care. I'm a basketball <laughs> guy. <laughs> and so I'm waiting for when we can go back and we, we can actually watch basketball in person and when we can watch baseball in person. These are the things that, that warm my heart on a cold winter's day. I, I really try and ignore the Super Bowl as much as possible. David, 110%, <laughs> well, both not. on the basketball front and in the not watching the Super Bowl. It wasn't a statement. It wasn't I wasn't virtue signaling, but I did retweets a story where Dr. Anthony Fauci was uh, you know, encouraging U.S. citizens to not throw big parties, to stay in their ponds and their families. And I retweeted it and, and made a comment not intended to be snarky, just being honest. I said, I'll do my part. I don't intend to watch it at all. And I didn't. Well, our neighborhood has a big, one of our neighbors hosts a big chili cook-off. 
on Super Bowl Sunday every year. So it was very sad for us to not be at that annual party. Last year, our son, he would move on 12 last year, won second place. And it's quite the competition, I will tell you, with very high-end chilies and some 20 or more contestants. So we did our part by just watching it in our own family pod as well. I'm a big fan of chili cook-offs. I really am. And I should say too, I should qualify this. I don't mind the Super Bowl, but in the pandemic effort where we're all socially distant, I'm not interested in watching it by myself, but I love a Super Bowl party. Yeah. Bring on the chili. And Dan, how have you been? I'm okay. I'm okay. It is snowy and cold here in Chicago. It's been so cold this last week that I have refrained from running, which is, you have to make this calculation. And it's hard enough when it's single digit or double digit out there with lakeshore winds to to go out at six in the morning to run in the dark. But when the wind chill is negative 20, nah, I have to call it We're also midway through the semester, believe it or not, because we started so soon. So we're coming up on midterm in the next week. So that's both exciting and bizarre, all things considered. But my most exciting news uh, for today, literally today as we're recording this on Monday, is I got up. I'm always an early riser, as the two of you know. But I managed to get myself down to the DMV at quarter of seven in the morning to stand in frigid, cold, sub-zero weather to wait 45 minutes to get in line to renew my driver's license. <laughs> and I was shocked, believe it or not. I thought I was ahead of the game in the cold, but there were already 20 people ahead of me in line when I got there. Shout out to the Chicagoans who they know what they're doing too. But anyways, my license is in, has been renewed, so thanks be to God. It's good to be legit. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too legit to quit. That's what they say. <laughs> Do you, How are you doing, David? Well, I'm doing pretty well. My family has, as I've said before, we've been really leaning into the social distancing and sheltering in place for now 12 months. And part of that has been we've been homeschooling the kids. And part of the homeschooling has been both of our children, our daughter and our son, have long-term projects. And I want to talk this morning about my daughter's long-term project. She is really interested in fashion, so she's been learning about design, and she's been learning how to sew. And so in the last few weeks, she's been making her own clothes, which has been amazing to watch. And for a person who is fumble-fingered in most things, watching the dexterity and watching the kind of something go from idea or pattern into full-fledged dress or full-fledged shirt and short combination, I've been really impressed. And I'm just really proud that in the midst of what has been a really horrible time, there have been some bright moments like that where I can look and say, even though this hasn't been a perfect year, there have been some spots where the kids have really grown and have really grown into this moment in ways that maybe they wouldn't have if we had been in business as usual. And so I'm thankful for that, even though I think everybody would like to get this year back in some way and have things be different. But for the most part, I'm doing well and I'm okay. I'm happy to be back with the two of you, even if just virtually, because uh, this is one of the highlights of an ongoing existence. I think I've said on one of the earlier episodes, we have a, a magnetic calendar on the side of our refrigerator. And a few months ago, my wife just stopped even writing the month 
that it was and just started writing at the top, what even is a month 2020? And now it's what even is a month 2021? Time is very fluid. And so it's nice to have moments like this to connect and catch up and actually have some human contact. As much as I love being with my family, it's nice to see other people. (laughs) David, kudos to your daughter for acquiring a great life skill from one sower to another. We stopped filling in the month on our calendar last April. It still has April up there, which makes us feel a little lost in time. And I'm feeling a little lost because we have some holidays coming up that we're not sure how to celebrate. So when we get to the Lent part, it'll be interesting. But Valentine's Day, we're going to have to show a little love just in our family here. And then we also celebrate the Lunar New Year, which starts this week as well. And about to start the year of the ox. We did a a virtual kind of culture camp thing over the weekend, but we'll really miss going to parades and going out to eat for those holidays, but hanging in there. So another thing that my family has been doing, we got nine inches of snow here last week in Chicago. And then a couple of days we had really great snowball and snowman weather, and then things dropped to sub-zero. But for those few days where we had really good weather, the kids were going out and playing. We were walking in the snow and all of this and enjoying the kind of crazy winter wonderland before everything became undrivable and unnavigable. But I'm wondering, did the two of you manage to get out and play in the snow at all? Heidi, how about your family? Oh, yeah. We're a, we're a get out no matter what the uh, weather is. We, as I think I've mentioned before, we have a ice rink in our backyard. You you may recall we had the swimming pool in the backyard during the summer. And now my husband built with a wooden frame and we have this huge plastic liner and we filled it with water. So it took a while, but now we have enough cold where we have ice. So I'll just say when we get those nine inches, and it might have even been more here on the north side, we now have to basically shovel our entire backyard because we have to shovel off the rink. So we've been skating, doing a little skating, obviously playing, but we've been doing a lot of shoveling. My son, who is 13, got the entrepreneurial spirit and went out after that big snowstorm and earned almost $200 in one wow. day. So we're having a lot of conversations about how to manage your money. <laughs> <laughs> He's quite the entrepreneur. He's the the chef, the the, the cook, the, the snow king. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. Well, Dan, how about you? Did you? I know that you're not running right now, but did you manage to get out and play in the snow at all? When it snows, I don't mind running in it, actually. I have gear for that. It's, it's just when it gets so bitterly cold that it's hard to breathe that's prohibitive. So that's the closest to playing in the snow. Our friary is located at a intersection in a Chicago uh, street where we have a lot of sidewalk. And when the snow first started falling, our little snowblower wasn't working. But two of the brothers were able to get it operational by the end of that day. And so it was a lifesaver. You know, just a little bit of shoveling. And then mostly the quote unquote playing in the snow is trudging around Hyde Park and getting really frustrated with the folks who don't take the time to shovel out their their little sidewalks. And it becomes uh, really a mess. But no snow angels, no snow people. We're just living in the snow. Well, listeners, we know that you also, wherever you are, you're looking for ways to be distracted, and we're very grateful that you are taking a few minutes with us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about Sister Natalie Bacar. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. 
The naming of two undersecretaries to a Vatican office is not usually big news, but last weekend's naming of a duo for the office of the Synod of Bishops was. That's because in addition to naming an Augustinian priest, Spanish father Louis Marin de San Martin, Pope Francis also named Sister Natalie Bacar, a French Xaverian sister who was the former director of the French Bishop's Vocation Office. A synod is a gathering of a large group of bishops, usually hundreds, in Rome, to discuss topics chosen by the Pope. The Office of the Synod of Bishops helps organize those meetings. Sister Natalie was an organizer for the 2018 Bishop Synod on Young People and has been a consultant to the Synod Office since 2019. This is an important office, as Pope Francis has held four synods in his eight years in office, and synodality has been a theme of his papacy. But the role of women in bishop synods has been controversial. Although women have been appointed to synods as auditors or as experts, none has yet served as a full voting member. Heidi, what does Sister Natalie's appointment mean? Will a woman finally have a voice at a Vatican synod? Women have had a voice, but will they have the vote is the question. And the answer at this point is maybe. We don't know for sure. Some initial reporting seemed to indicate that maybe this meant that she would have a a vote. Sister Natalie, if she is named a synod member, would have a vote, and that would uh, be the first time that a woman had a vote. But it seems that the original Italian version said there was a possibility of a door being opened, but then then the English translation, according to Josh McElwee, NCR's Vatican correspondent, seemed to soften that language. And then complicating this was that San Martin, I'm trying to get the uh, accent correct there, following you, David, the man who was named as co-undersecretary was named to be a bishop at the same time. In having a conversation with Joshua McElwee about this, he seemed to think that was odd. So there's not a necessity that he can see for the undersecretary to be a bishop. Obviously, the secretary of that Vatican office is a bishop. It's Cardinal Breck. But to name him a bishop and then to say, here, these two are going to be co-secretaries, and now you have that kind of power differential, that seems to make some people a little less optimistic. It almost sounds like something is being given with one hand and taken back with another hand. But I'm saying that as a layperson, Dan, I want to ask you, when I make that characterization, is that accurate or am I missing something here? It's complicated, like Heidi was saying. There's no reason why any of the staff of any of the dicasteries need to have any kind of titular rank, frankly. But there is custom, and the custom has been that for the largest dicasteries, they're typically cardinals, and that the secretaries are actually technically archbishops. This has been the case for a long time. It was the case with the Congregation for Religious. Now Cardinal Tobin was elevated to archbishop in his capacity after being the general minister or the general superior of the Redemptorists. He was appointed as the secretary of of that congregation um, and then became archbishop of Indianapolis and so on. Similar thing happened to a former, the, the most immediate previous general minister of the Franciscan order. He's the secretary of another congregation and was ordained a bishop and, and elevated to the rank of archbishop. So in some ways, there's plenty of precedent for making this uh, Spanish priest a bishop. The problem is, I, I don't know if it's advancing and taking away. I, I just think it it further sheds a light, and this is probably part of the reason why The gender inequity in the Vatican has been so deeply entrenched because when you see this situation like this, 
all of a sudden, the clericalism comes into stark relief because there is nowhere for a woman to be elevated to beyond the appointment of the office itself. There, she can't be ordained, and so she can't be ordained a presbyter or a bishop or an archbishop. Furthermore, it raises, I think, in my eyes, a, a further illustration of the absurdity of titular bishoprics. These guys are bishops of nothing. They are bishops without people. They are bishops without legitimate sees. They're bishops of titular sees. When I say legitimate, I don't mean they're illegitimate bishops. They're ordained valid bishops. There's no questioning that. But the point is, theologically, in terms of the church's ecclesiology, there's some real problems with that. An auxiliary bishop or an, a, a curial bishop, a dicastery bishop, like these cardinals and archbishops and bishops who work in the Vatican, they don't have a diocese, just like auxiliary bishops in large sees like Chicago or Newark or Washington, D.C. Some of that's just functional, and in a regular diocese, that makes sense. Cardinal Supich cannot do all the confirmations in the Archdiocese of Chicago. You need other bishops. So that makes some sense. For desk jockeys in Rome who have important work to do, no, no questioning that, I, I don't understand it. And I think when you see somebody like Sister Natalie being appointed, qualified, capable, experienced for the role— Without this possibility of a kind of ordination elevation for arbitrary custom's sake, it raises questions about why are we doing this for the men? Heidi, I, it sounds like from what Dan is saying that we'll not really know what Sister Natalie Bacar's role is until we actually see her in action. When will be the earliest that we can do that? Is there a synod on the horizon? When is the next meeting of bishops? There is a synod on the horizon, the synod on synodality, or the, we jokingly call the meeting on meetings. So the next synod of bishops is scheduled for October of 2022 with the theme of synodality. And so, as you mentioned, David, synodality has been an important theme of Pope Francis's papacy. Yeah, if she is named a member of the synod, then it's true that she would likely have a vote in that synod. We won't know until the Pope names who are the bishops who are going to be attending or who are the members of that synod. So that would probably not be until the summer before. So we have a while to know that. You know, she's Sister Natalie, I met her, and I think you did also, Dan. She spoke at Catholic Theological Union a couple of years ago, shortly after the Synod on Young People, and she's a lovely person, and I'm very excited to to see a woman named to this office. Now, she's not the first woman undersecretary at the Vatican, but this office, which is about the Synod of Bishops, I think it is still significant that a woman would be named to undersecretary of that office. Yeah, it's very significant. Um, and I think it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. It's particularly when you look at the kind of deeply entrenched clericalism, there are going to be some bishops who do not like the idea of a religious sister of a woman who has authority over things like agenda setting and the facilitation, including the nominations of which bishops of the globe and which advisors and that sort of thing are invited to participate. It will be very interesting to see how it plays out. And, and you're right, Heidi, I, I did meet Sister Natalie. She came after the Synod on Young Adults to do a sabbatical here at CTU and was in Chicago for a while. And I, I, it's just going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. She's very savvy. She's just very skilled and really good at organization and leadership. And you know that was demonstrated within the Church of France. She held very high positions in the Bishop's Conference in France and and then with the Synod on Young Adults. If anyone can do it, it seems like she can, It's but it's going to be a minefield. And I hope this is the beginning of 
the end of some of the most extreme sort of exclusion. So while I do see this as a positive, I have to say it's still uh, kind of out there. So as a mom of a girl, and, and David, you could maybe speak to this too, do you think this is a big enough statement that it's going to move anybody who feels like women need uh, to have more roles in the church. How would you explain this to your daughter, David, or does this uh, get you excited? So like many things with the church right now, my family has a wait-and-see attitude because there are things that look good on paper that oftentimes do not end up being good in actuality, and that's been true now for a number of years in relating to local Catholicism. So I mainly relate through the Chicago Archdiocese, and then I think about wider church issues, and I occasionally get into fights with trad Catholics and bishops on Twitter. But for the most part, my cynicism is a local cynicism. My daughter has said that she is is concerned about the fact that there are not women in leadership roles in the church. That is an ongoing conversation. I think this is a good gesture, but until we actually know how this plays out and what forces will be ranged against Sister Bakar to undermine her, because I can imagine some bishops and others, I hate to say this, but I can imagine that there would be some in leadership positions that would seek to undermine her or her authority in this position. I think that it's a wait-and-see attitude for my family. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a cliche, but things move very slowly in a church that's 2,000 years old. To put it in perspective, I said a moment ago, I think this, I hope this is the beginning of something. And I, I get very impatient, frankly, with commentators, both public commentators and then people on social media, kind of private individuals who offer, and understandably so, very cynical views of this kind of announcement where they say, oh, this is, what is this? Blah, blah, blah. My response to that is you have to start somewhere. <laughs> You have to start somewhere. That it's many centuries in the making and, and long overdue is valid point. That's notwithstanding. But let's put it in perspective. I'm 37 years old. When I was an altar server, we were altar boys. Girls were not allowed to even vest and assist at the liturgy. When girls, and the term literally, you know, not, not adult women, but girls were allowed to enter into that, or women after the Second Vatican Council started serving in public ministries, that's the start of something. And I'm not advocating for incrementalism. I'm just saying, I don't want us to discount this either, that this is an opening. And oftentimes, that's exactly how this happens. I'll give an example. The liturgical renewal in the church before the Second Vatican Council began with weird, retrospectively at the time, it seemed like weird, tiny little changes, like Pius XII's restoration of the unified rite at the Easter Vigil for RCIA. That was a big deal because it, it changed a whole lot of things about liturgical life that led to Sacrosanctum Concilium. It was a recognition of things that were to come and things that were being done in the academic level that get trickled up into practice at the administrative level. I think if you start looking in the aggregate, things like this appointment, things like Pope Francis last month, really making what I think is a significant change, though people don't appreciate it fully, which is adjusting the code of canon law to allow for the institution of women and men, lay women and men, to positions of instituted acolyte and lector. People say women have been reading at mass and assisting for decades, and that's true, but they've canonically been prohibited from being formal lectors, which is a requirement to be ordained to the diaconate or to the presbyterate. So if you look at the bigger picture, these little things start to accumulate, and they're not enough. By all means, I'm not saying this is, okay, we got to pat ourselves on the back, but I just also want us to recognize the significance 
of what we're seeing unfold before us. And I agree with you, David, and your family. It's a wait and see situation. Let's wait and see. So, yeah, I agree with you, Dan, and I'm certainly pleased by this appointment. On the other hand, I understand the frustration of many women in the church. I think at the last synod, especially because the topic of women's ministry in the Amazon and the possibility of opening and broadening that somewhat was on the agenda. We did see a number of folks who were using the term suffragist, so trying to be saying that women should have a vote, since especially some of these votes affected women's ministry. And we didn't see that at that synod. And their protests, votes for women, this sort of thing from the Women's Ordination Conference and, and other folks attracted some media attention, even New York Times and that sort of thing. So it is a wait and see, and I'm uh, trying to be optimistic. It would be nice if things could move along a little bit, especially when we're talking about women's roles in the church. But the naming of Sister Natalie is for sure a good thing. We will certainly be keeping our eye on this, and we'd love to hear from you listeners about what this means for you and whether or not you see this as a moment for cynicism or as a moment for hope within the church. We're always happy to hear from you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about issues and various topics seen through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. It is, as they say in Game of Thrones, winter. We're in the middle of winter. Here in Chicago, we're buried under 8 to 10 inches of snow with multiple days of sub-zero wind chill. In a pandemic where options of activity are already severely limited, there's even less for individuals and families to do. Luckily, we live in the age of streaming. There's Netflix, Amazon, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, and on and on and on. We have more options than ever before to distract ourselves with an old movie, a new TV series, or even random YouTube videos about how to bake the perfect sourdough loaf. So David, I'm curious. You love the television. What have you and your family been watching these days to distract and entertain yourselves? Great British baking show. This has been just a, a revelation for us. And now we've watched enough of it that we're even snooty about which seasons we like, because at about the midpoint, at least on the Netflix run, they switch several important figures within the Great British Baking Show. And so we like certain seasons and we like certain hosts and all that. But my wife and I, we got into watching this as pure, just comfort viewing. And then our kids were wrestling around, and occasionally we watch things when we eat dinner together, mostly on the weekends and things like that. And they, we were looking for something for them, and we pitched this to them, and we weren't sure how they were going to take it. And they love it because it's really well crafted. It's got drama, but it's kind of low stakes. You get caught up in the story, but also there's really nothing emotional that's going to take you on a roller coaster. If you haven't checked it out yet and you have Netflix, I highly recommend Great British Baking Show. That, that is my first sort of out of the box. We've also been doing the Marvel movies. My wife and I have been catching up with WandaVision on YouTube. I've been watching a lot of things about tech stuff with regard to recording equipment. And so we can go down all those rabbit holes. But for right now, my main thing is Great British Baking Show. But Heidi, what have you and your family been watching? If you ask about our family, one thing I've noticed as my kids get older is that we have a harder time finding shows that all four of us are interested in and can watch. So we have that that thing going on where we all go to our own devices and watch different shows. So I have things that I watch 
I'm a big fan of British TV. I watch a lot of Masterpiece, and I'm right now catching up with the final season of Endeavor. I, I love a good British mystery. My husband and I watched this movie on Netflix uh, last week called The Dig, which I thought was very well done. It's based on a true story about the discovery of an archaeological significant boat and other findings in England. And we really enjoyed that. And it had some really deep themes in it about uh, the afterlife and the purpose of the meaning of life. So we enjoyed that. When it comes to our family, we too have watched some of those cooking shows. We, we were watching Food Truck Road Race for a while, which we enjoyed. And what we've done is we've gone back to the classics. So when we try to have family movie night, we find ourselves reaching back to things that my husband and I watched, whether we've watched Ferris Bueller, Mrs. Doubtfire, these kinds of movies. Dan, you got any good suggestions for us? What can we watch during oh, wow. this week? I degustibus nonis disputata. In taste, there is no dispute. So I preface what I'm about to say with that qualification because people may or may not like what I have to say. Unlike the Super Bowl, I do like TV. And I have three kind of general categories, I think. One is, I, like you, Heidi, I love mysteries. I really do. And I can be very impatient with storylines that I find too predictable. So, you know, here's some good and the bad. I watched The Undoing starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. That I thought was not so great. I also saw Defending Jacob, which was an Apple TV series that starred one of the Chris's of the four Chris's. I can't remember which one now. And Lady Mary from Downton Abbey. I can't remember the actress's name. Both very good actors. But again, stories that did not capture my attention. They seem too easily solved. But there, there are others that I really love. And before we started recording, I was talking about how I love, speaking of British mysteries, the series Broadchurch, which was a short run. Basically, it's a who's who cast of the best of these British actors. And the whole cast is wonderful. It's incredibly dark. It's very difficult. I remember talking to my parents who also love murder mysteries. And my mom shared, she's like, ever since I had children, she's the mother of four and has multiple grandchildren. She can't really enjoy watching murder mysteries that involve children. And so that's a disclaimer that Broadchurch is very grim. I've, I've been watching the latest season of The Sinner, which is a Netflix series. It's, it's the third installment. And in each of the seasons, the three seasons, follows a different story. And the current one is, is fascinating. I just started this the other day, and I'm about halfway through the, the season. And those kinds of programs are not predictable. They're very clever in the way that Heidi was talking about the best of kind of British mystery. Like David, when you're talking about Marvel, I, I'm not a Marvel Universe guy, but I am a Star Wars Universe guy. So I have loved The Mandalorian. I am obsessed with The Mandalorian. I think it's so well done. You know, I've gone back and, and over the course of the pandemic and, and rewatched even the prequels of the Star Wars series. And Maybe because it's decades now of me joining the the collective chorus of trashing them, my expectations were so low, they weren't that bad, I confess, to watch them again. I know. David, you can't see this, listeners. David's giving me a, a very quizzical look, a look of shame, perhaps. But that's a big asterisk next to that. I will say my go-to, especially in this pandemic season, and people who know me personally know that I am a very silly person. And I, it may not come across all the time in our conversations on the podcast or in my writing, but... 
I love absurdity. I love non sequitur humor. And so there are some go-tos. I like Family Guy and The Simpsons and this show on Cartoon Network called Robot Chicken, which <laughs> is truly absurd. It takes pop culture and it's claymation and it's adult humor in this really silly setting, but it's very cleverly written. I will say two programs that I've, I've just recently started that I really like that are comedies. One's more absurd in that spirit, and it comes from Canada. It's like in the the ether of Schitt's Creek, which is also wonderful. That's like a wholesome silliness. A, a more pure silly Canadian show is called Letter Kenny, which is streaming on Hulu right now. And I know from interactions on social media with my colleague and boss, as it were, the opinion editor at NCR, Olga Segura, that she's a big fan, and I know other people are big fans of it too. It's a great program. I highly recommend it. And then I recently started watching Brockmire, Star Starring Hank Azaria, which is an, is dark. Hank Azaria and Amanda Peet are the co-stars of that program. And it's a dark comedy, but it's, again, very well written and well acted. Dan, I'm going to tell you that I even like predictable mysteries. So it depends on the day. So if you've had a really rough day at work or a stressful day in the family, I love nothing better than to sit back and watch an old Perry Mason or something like that, where it's all going to turn out in the, someone in the courtroom is going to stand up and confess before the show is over. But I, I do think, and and my husband and I are both big uh, fans of not only British, but other international shows. I'm a knitter, so I like to knit while I'm watching TV, so I can't do as much with subtitles. But there are so many great British shows out there, and a number of them with explicitly religious ties. Everybody knows Father Brown, of course, and Call the Midwife, which is just so excellently done. I'm also a fan of Grand Chester. Not only that's got a mystery, but it's got some really interesting character development. And the priest, who's a Protestant minister, gives a, gives a sort of homily at the end that kind of summarizes everything. And I always find that kind of moving. We cut the cable cord a couple years ago, or many years ago. We haven't regretted it. Of course, we have Netflix and Hulu, but certainly plenty to watch out there and keep us engaged. I also love documentaries. There's too many to really list. And the, those limited documentary series like the, Mike, the Michael Jordan series that ESPN produced that's now streaming and, and a number of others, HBO, of course, is so good at producing extraordinary shows like that. I, I was thinking about, you were mentioning, Heidi, subtitles and these sorts of things. My One of my brothers is obsessed with Babylon Berlin, which is streaming on Netflix, a German show. And I keep hearing people talk about this. It's it's being recommended by other podcasters and journalists. I remember listening to an interview that Terry Gross had with Stephen King at the beginning of the pandemic, and Stephen King was raving about how much he loved this show. And I can't speak of it from personal experience yet. I keep promising my brother that it's, it is truly on my list. It's on my horizon. But there's just so many good things out there right now. This is one thing that I was thinking of. A hundred years ago, there was the pandemic. And the differences between now and then, because it's eerie all the parallels, right? Almost a century later, we're having the same thing. What haven't we learned? But one thing that is vastly different is we have this incredible entertainment landscape. Like we, we can literally distract ourselves from death at this particular moment. And for better and for worse, that's there. I study storytelling. And I work with clients about how to turn their ideas into compelling stories that kind of work in different audiences that are used to stories being told in a structured way. And I have to say, I, as both of you have, have noted, 
the stories that we're getting right now are really phenomenal, and particularly the stories from the BBC. I don't know what it is about that particular writing culture that brings out such deeply nuanced character studies, but it's really fantastic. And we don't often see that on the American side of the ocean, but the one place that I have been seeing it a lot, and it's not in the Star Wars universe, but I have been seeing it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as I go back and we're now watching those films with our kids, and Kira, my wife, and I have watched those films again and again, I'm continually struck by how much attention there is to detail and storytelling. Things that get set up in one movie get paid off four and five movies later. It is, I've never seen on this scale that kind of epic storytelling with that much coherence and connection. So we're living in a really amazing age right now where it's one distractible, yes, but also if you're into storytelling and really good character development, this is an amazing time. Uh, so true, David. And no spoilers, please, because I'm just starting to watch the WandaVision. And I'm less immersed in that whole universe, but I love the vintage th references and the throwback to the vintage shows in the WandaVision series. So we're just getting started with that one. Dan, you mentioned documentaries, and I just wanted to say we often review documentaries at the National Catholic Reporter, especially if they have some sort of religious or social justice angle. And documentaries are so uh, well done these days and take advantage often of the storytelling and other ways of making it very even entertaining. But I have to say, as somebody who consumes news all day for a living, when my husband suggests a documentary at the end of the day about World War II or something. Sometimes I just have to pass on those. And and just a quick shout out, Dan, you mentioned Olga Segura. She's our opinion editor. She's recently taken over our pop culture section. And she just started this past weekend with a weekly pop culture newsletter called NCR Weekend or NCR Culture. And she's been coordinating. I think you're going to see a lot more pop culture coverage in NCR, especially look for it on Saturdays. Yeah, she. it's great. I saw it come out on Saturday and gave her a shout out. Uh, please subscribe, sign up for that. The The last thing maybe to worth highlighting is, David, you mentioned the parallels to a century ago with the, the 1918 pandemic. One thing that I've also noticed is that we have this alternative form of entertainment, but it can be draining in its own right. And I have found myself drawn to more reading. Now, I read for a living. I read and I write and I read and I write all day long. But you were saying, Heidi, about information, processing information. But I'm very reluctant in normal times to read fiction. I'm very picky about fiction because it's an investment. If you're going to pick up a 400-page novel, I want to know it's going to be worthwhile. Some people like the the mystery thing. They, they, they can, they'll take whatever. They like the genre. And I've got a, a few really great books, novels for for Christmas that, I, that I've just devoured in recent weeks, including Lawrence Wright's amazing novel, The End of October, which is about a, a fictional pandemic that's very eerily COVID-19. It's such a good book. I keep thinking about it. Another one is called A Children's Bible, which is not nearly about Bibles as much as you would think, though there is one that plays a prominent role, but it's also a real wild journey and it's a page turner. But I will say this last thing about a streaming, as grateful as I am for it and whatnot, the lessons learned and lessons not learned, as you said, David, I'm looking forward to whatever the equivalent of our roaring 20s is that follows this pandemic. But let us not forget the Great Depression, the fascism, the populism and nationalism that arose in the 1930s globally as well. So I'm praying though I don't have a lot of confidence given the political state of things right now, that maybe we can take those historical lessons away too. In the meantime, we can entertain ourselves. 
And with that note of caution, let us take a step back from this sweet entertainment and get back to some more serious topics as well. But I'm grateful for this chance to learn about some new shows. And thanks for both of you for sharing what you and your families have been binging on lately. Those of you listeners, we'd love to hear what you're watching as well. So please do let us know. We're going to take a break for right now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Even as this year of pandemic and political turmoil can seem at times to last an eternity and advance at a snail's pace, the Church's liturgical year continues to move forward. One week from today is Ash Wednesday, which means the beginning of the season of Lent. Traditionally, the 40 days of Lent mirror the 40 days the Bible says Jesus spent in the desert fasting, praying, and being tempted by the devil. A season of penance, prayer, and almsgiving in the Christian tradition, Lent is supposed to be a time of reflection and sacrifice, self-evaluation, and conversion. Many Christians take Lent as an opportunity to, quote, give something up or do something different as an ascetical practice. Lent is a period of time intended in part to interrupt our normal lives, our living of, quote unquote, ordinary time, in order to embrace conversion and renew our Christian vocations. However, in the midst of a nearly year-long season of pandemic, which has forced the entire world to sacrifice all sorts of activities and pleasures while enduring unprecedented hardships, what does it mean to enter into the Lenten season now? Dan, how are you thinking about Lent this year? What are you going to do to mark the season? Boy, I don't know. <laughs> I'm really sympathetic to a lot of the conversation that's going on right now among all sorts of people, among the church's ministers and professed religious, among your everyday Catholic Christian and non-Catholic Christians out there who see Lent creeping up on us much faster than usual. It happens to be a very early Lent this year. Ash Wednesday is in a week. I, I think there's something to be said about not overstressing the sacrificial element here, because I think there's a way in which sometimes asceticism gets misunderstood, that these kind of disciplines we impose on ourselves which are supposed to be means to greater ends and not ends in themselves, can distract from what it is we're supposed to be doing, thinking, praying about, and and believing. I, I don't have a hard and fast rule other than to say I think people need to engage in discernment, frankly, this year. I think a lot of people particularly younger people, children, it's easy to develop an ascetical practice in early years of saying, I'm going to give up my favorite dessert or not play with this toy for 40 days and, and to associate a spiritual meaning with that. And I think that's all well and good. But as we grow up and have more agency and more resources, the question about that spirit of almsgiving or charity, what do we do for others? How do we convert ourselves to be more Christ-like in the world with those we interact with? That should be our primary focus. What that looks like in a pandemic can take a lot of different forms. David, what, I mean, what do you think about this? Well, as you were saying that, and that you basically said asceticism is a means to a greater end, what rang through my head was, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you give the tithe of anise and cumin, but you lay off the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and the law. 
And I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that oftentimes we get caught up, particularly as Catholics, in the actions of Catholicism and not in the ends of Catholicism. I see on social media people who are exercised about whether or not they can go to physical mass, but they're not thinking about caring for their neighbors. They're not thinking about the health and safety of those around them. They're not even really thinking about, in some cases, the safety and health of their families. They're simply thinking about, I need to check this box, I need to check this box, I need to check this box. So I heard that in the spirit of, we shouldn't make asceticism another box to check. Asceticism is designed to make us more empathetic and more oriented towards those in our community who are are suffering and who are vulnerable. Now, when I'm saying that's what I heard in what you were saying, am I getting it or did I miss what you meant? Uh, I think you're getting it. I think that what you're highlighting too is a way in which people can put ascetical practices like fasting, almsgiving, and disciplines of prayer and so forth before, before their faith commitment, or the commitment to the fundamentals of what it is we believe. And I think there's something to be said about those practices that help form and reform us, right, in our faith and, and to embody that in a particularly Catholic sacramental way. So there's nothing against that in principle. The question I see that you're raising, David, is do we evaluate ourselves? Do we do an examination of conscience to ask why are we doing this? To what end? What is the purpose? Fasting is a, tr- a tricky thing, particularly in a socialized context where, particularly in the United States, it's very gender. Women relate to notions of fasting, withholding food, eating, these sorts of things. Men do too, obviously, but certainly not in as widespread a manner. And so it's complicated in many ways. Yeah, Heidi, what do you think about this? I was going to bring that up too, uh, as you were talking about the disconnect sometimes between the practices and the ends. Certainly there are a lot of suffering people out there this year, there always are, but this year just even more. So I think we have a an easy way to uh, direct our good works during Lent towards people who are suffering. We might have to do it in different ways. We ran a piece last year by just Jessica Koblenz on this issue of women in fasting. And we can put that in the show notes that, that talked very specifically about the cultural issues around women's bodies and the relationship that women have to food. And, and consequently, for many years, I did not fast or do aesthetical practices that were related to food. But just as we were talking about in the last segment about how the pandemic has made us have to look at everything differently, whether it's entertainment or spirituality or family life or schooling or whatever it is, I'm confident that Catholics will find ways to make Lent significant even during a pandemic. So for example, there's even conversations already about Ash Wednesday and are we going to have ashes put on our forehead or sprinkled over our heads in terms of being safe around that practice. For our family, which has yet to go to in-person liturgies, how will we mark Ash Wednesday? Can we? Is that something we could do as a family, or do we need, really need a clergy person to mark that day? What do you guys think? The other concern that I have building on that is if we think about wider Catholicism, and I've occasionally talked about the fact that I get into these imbroglios with traditional Catholics and stuff on social media, we oftentimes will use these kind of tick boxes as ways of making certain Catholics into second-class Catholics. And instead of thinking about the community and the common wheel, the good for the community, 
We instead think about, I'm doing this and this, and these people are not, and therefore they are less than I am. So again, there's a real opportunity here for us to come together and to think about the vulnerable and to think about ways that we can be caring for each other as a community. Or there are ways that we can use these same practices as ways to really separate ourselves from one another. I think there are three things, too, that are worth highlighting in response to what both of you are saying. To Heidi, to your point earlier, first and foremost, Ash Wednesday does not require an ordained minister. Lay people can preside over and distribute ashes, that it's in the book of blessings, and it's something that you might consider doing as a family. Traditionally, the ashes are are formed from the previous year's palms that are burned, and then usually commercially, because large parishes need more than what they're capable of burning on their own, you you buy these things from church supply companies where there's a little bit of dye added or a little bit of, to make it darker so it's more visible to what is otherwise gray ash. So that's the first thing, is that no, you don't have to actually go to church, nor do you need a deacon or priest. The second thing is that ashes on Ash Wednesday are a sacramental, not a sacrament. There is no obligation at all for Catholics or for non-Catholic Christians to even go to church on Ash Wednesday. Now, it's a perfectly good devotion. It's a perfectly good practice. There's always daily Mass, and going to Mass as often as you can and as often as you feel called by God to do so is always a great thing. However, it's not a holy day of obligation. I think a lot of people are confused by that because they see the visible marker and they think, I got to get that, otherwise I'm you know, not a good Catholic or this, that, and the other. Which brings me to the third point, which is there's an irony in the gospel of the day itself on Ash Wednesday in which Jesus, hearkening back to something, David, you had said earlier, Jesus chastises those people who make big public displays of their fasting, of their charitable giving, their almsgiving, of their praying, and they parade around and they make it very visible, very known in order to be lauded for that. I think there's a tendency in our social media age to do the same thing, uh, whether that's Catholic commentators on ESPN or the news or politicians who speak on the congressional floor with their you know ashes on their forehead, and or whether it's the selfie kind of thing. I, I think this would be a year for us to reset our kind of perspective on this and to think about what is the season of Lent really all about, and it's about that interior work that leads to exterior practice. It's it's about actualizing our faith and not just demonstrating or posturing our faith. And and what I'll say is what's required of Catholics, technically speaking, on Ash Wednesday is that it's a day of fasting and abstinence. We collectively do not eat meat, and we are to fast according to the instructions of, of the church in there are certain categories, of course, children, senior citizens, people who are vulnerable. It doesn't apply to them in the same way. But that's deliberate to get us to jar ourselves, to redirect our attention. Not unlike other religious traditions, I think of our Muslim sisters and brothers during their holy season of Ramadan, where what do you do? Well, when you're feeling the hunger pains, what does that elicit in your prayer life and in your thoughts? Do you think about and are you in solidarity, for instance, with those who suffer hunger, uh, who suffer food insecurity and that sort of thing? So I, I think there's a real opportunity here for renewal, for growth, which is really the importance of Lent. I'm, I'm putting on my to-do list, burn last year's palms for home ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Dan. That's helpful to remember. I know one thing the reporter in me is wondering about our second Catholic president and whether he will be, seems to be a pretty regular churchgoer, even on Holy Days of Obligation, which as you point out, Ash Wednesday isn't one, but will he have ashes? I suspect he likely would. And as you mentioned, David, will this become yet another occasion for 
discussion of or judgments about his Catholicity or, or place in the church. I hope not, because that's not what the intention of Ash Wednesday or the season is. But again, I'm interested as we go through Lent, maybe we can share a little bit here on the podcast about how we're doing it differently this year because of the pandemic. And I'll I'll just say, I've been joking about social media throughout this particular episode, but I also, because of this program and because I've become more active on social media, I've had the occasion to be interacting with both listeners and non-listeners, but people who are very serious about their Catholic faith, who I know are struggling through this time of pandemic about how to be properly Catholic, how to be visible in their faith, but also how to care for those that are around them in their family. And so I don't want to make light of that at all. I recognize that for every single person listening and for many who are not listening, this is a matter of extreme discernment with regard to their conscience and with regard to how they are how they're figuring out what is required within church teaching. So all of that, I think, is a very important thing to lift up at this particular moment, the fact that what we are needing right now from the bishops in particular is for them to exercise their clear teaching office around these essential moments for the Catholic faithful, around how are we to be faithful Catholics in this time of extremity. What we're getting sometimes instead is the same old boilerplate talking points and the same falling back upon old culture war phrases and ideas. And so there's a disconnect right now around both the leadership and among the rank-and-file Catholic faithful who are all trying to figure out what are we being called to in this particular moment. Again, to quote the scripture, the book of Esther, for a time like this, what are we being called to do? And I think that you're you both are are naming it. We're being called to discern carefully how we are caring for one another. And it's not about performance. It's about preservation, if I can be that alliterative about it. And I think, too, David, you hit the nail on the head. I'm just anticipating we'll see a range of responses from local bishops, particularly those who are very vocal about things that I would consider, and I think the Church makes very clear, are more peripheral than are central. And I'm not trying to to downplay the significance of the season of Lent at all, which is very important, or the, the celebration of Ash Wednesday or its, or its commemoration, maybe more accurately put. But it's important for Catholics to know that this is not the most important thing and that you are not under any obligation to physically go to a church in the middle of a pandemic or at any time, frankly— to receive ashes. That's a devotional practice that is encouraged. And I I also benefit from being a priest and being in a religious community. So my context is a very privileged one. But it's important, I think, for listeners to know that don't feel shamed by the social media discourse. Don't feel the pressure if you are uncertain or feel unsafe or, or have your doubts. The, the important thing is Jesus makes clear in the gospel for Ash Wednesday that day is what God sees in your heart and how that is manifested in your actions. Well, folks listening, we want to hear how you are figuring out and navigating this particular time and how you will be thinking about Lent moving forward. So please feel free to share that with us. And we're glad to bring this up again in the midst of Lent to talk about how things are going. Dan, it's great to see you. Heidi, it's great to see you. Thanks again. Great to be with you, David. Always great to be with you, Heidi. Happy Valentine's Day, Happy New Year, Happy Mardi Gras, and Happy Lent. As we're all entering Lent, know, listeners, that you are in our prayers, and we certainly welcome yours for us as well. And until next time, you've been listening to The Francis Effect. 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have five seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. You thought we wouldn't be able to fill the time. Please. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> You've been with us long enough to know. <laughs> <laughs> we got enough hot air to float a balloon here. <laughs> That's right.